1: His next collection of verse though, Poems and Ballads, which had been published the following year, was savaged by the critics, and their denunciations of the vicious sensuality of the poems was so widespread and harsh that an obscenity indictment from the Attorney General seemed likely, and the publisher withdrew the book only a month after its publication. But a bolder publisher picked it up before the year's end, and by then the book had found passionate admirers among the young men at Oxford and Cambridge, and a few critics hesitantly began to concede that Swinburne's poems, for all their pagan and even anti-Christian excesses, held a power not seen in English literature since Shelley and Byron and Keats. Naturally, thought Swinburne now, I share the same species of muse that those poets had. The attentions of the antediluvian, stony tribe kill those we love and make us suffer in sunlight, but, in a side effect that they may not even be aware of, awaken language in us, make of it a living beast that can be harnessed and ridden.
0: Tim Powers is the author of Dinner at Deviant's Palace, On Stranger Tides, Declare, Last Call, Expiration Date, Earthquake Weather, The Anubis Gates, and Three Days to Never, and A Time to Cast Away Stones. His newest novel is Hide Me Among the Graves. Thank you for joining me, Tim. I'm
1: happy to be here. Uh,
0: Among the many fascinating notions at the heart of this book is the idea that artists are inspired by forces outside of themselves that are generally inimical to the rest of the human race. And I'd like to know which devil inspires you.
1: Well, actually, If I was to take the idea seriously I suppose it would be some sort of old Celtic Irish thing lurking in uh, the base of my genetics and and I'd try to claim some sort of kinship with people like William Butler Yeats but really of course I just go with where the research leads me reading the biographies of people like Byron and uh, Keats and Shelley and all the way up through Christina Rossetti and Algernon Swinburne, it really does seem to the kind of paranoid squint I like to look at research with, that their gift, their poetic gift, did seem to sort of come from outside themselves and in what I like to think is a link they generally had very unfortunate personal relationships. And so I just figured, well, those are connected. It's
0: not a a coincidence. The one is uh, a result of the other. Now, this is a group of people you've been pursuing for a long time across your career. This book seems in some ways continues the story that started in the stress of her regard. And I'd like you to talk about how these people captured your interest and held it for so long. Well, I've always been
1: fascinated, for example, with Lord Byron. Uh, He's one of those literary characters whose life is at least as interesting as his work. And his work's pretty interesting. And I've just, for recreation, had read a lot of biographies and uh, the, what is it, 13-volume collected letters that Harvard University Press put out a few years ago and being very interested in science fiction and fantasy I couldn't help but pick up clues you know I think well this is very interesting you know by the w- just as an aside that's kinda spooky there and that's the fourth thing I've noticed and and if I think about it I, I believe I see uh, consistency in it as I say the research fairly well indicated that and then much more recently because stress of her regard was something like 20 years ago, 25 years ago, independently, I got interested in the Rossettis simply because Dante Gabriel Rossetti, when his wife died, uh, put his whole notebook of poetry manuscripts into the coffin with her and, and the poems were buried with her. And then of course, a few years later, a publisher told him, you know, if you had a collection of poetry, we could, we could publish a book. And so Rossetti said, Duh. give me a couple of days and dug her up again. And so given my fantasy writer squint, I immediately thought, why did he really dig her up again? He needed to get something else out or he needed to put something else in. And so I began reading up heavily on him and his sister and all their associates, and very quickly noticed that their uncle was John Polidori, their mother's brother, and that they were in a social circle that included Edward John Trelawney, who had been a major figure in the Byron and Shelley circle in Italy, and who in fact had been a minor character in my book, Stress of Regard*. And so I thought, well, uh, nothing you can do about it. It's, it's going to be a sequel. Um, not my fault. Uh, you know, the circumstances just fell out that way. And then Joe Stefko at Charnel House, a small press, does very elegant editions with all kind of exotic bindings and custom-made paper, had published the... Limited first edition of *Stress of Her Regard* back in '89, and it's in, so gorgeous. I have oh, that. It's amazing. He's he. It's interesting. He's a a rock musician, a drummer, mm-hmm. played with the Turtles and Meatloaf and Hot Tuna, but he somehow knows exactly how a book is supposed to look. He mm-hmm. has a real good eye for title pages and fonts, and bindings, and in fact, he's become a big collector of. Byron and Shelley, first editions. But in 99, uh, let's see, no, 2009, he said, it's 20 years since we did that first edition. Let's do some sort of novella to commemorate the 20th anniversary. And if you could, it would be awfully nice if it had something to do with Shelley and Byron again. And so I read up on what went on after Byron's death, and that led very strongly to Trelawney's adventures in Greece in which he got shot and nearly died and was uh, sort of co-captain to a kind of mountain warlord whose headquarters was in a cave at the top of Mount Parnassus. All just gorgeous stuff. Uh, It it seems... (laughs) I can see why this uh, how this works for you. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, you just if you do enough research, you find all the bricks already laid out. Uh I think, well, yes, look at this. Couldn't be better. And and then Trelawney, in his old age uh was uh pals with William Rossetti and 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 Dante Gabriel and and several of the others of that circle. And I found doing the research that um The Rossetti siblings, the four of them, didn't have children, at least didn't have children that survived. Uh, The two girls were celibate and William, though he married, uh, had uh, a couple of children that died in infancy. Then old Edward Trelawney gave William a piece of Shelley's charred skull which all true, I'm not making any of this up. And after that, they could have children that survived. After that, William went on to have uh, any number of totally healthy children. And I thought, well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Clear enough, thank you. Um, And so really, uh, uh, my task becomes
0: connect the dots. Well, I, you do a hell of a job connecting the dots. I think one of the things that makes your books uh, so interesting and so powerful is your at, at the heart of all of this is a really interesting prose style. Your prose is very compact and it seems like you strip away words almost to get us right to the heart of the action. It moves really fast, and this book, in particular, is, a, is an action-packed page-turner, and I thought that was very interesting. Could you talk about crafting the prose to, on one hand, you've got this great story out there, and then you've gotta put it together um, and create your characters and find your voice. Well, I remember Hemingway was asked
1: once, How did he develop his style? And he said, what people refer to as my style is simply my attempt to convey very clearly the elements of a scene that I think are worth particular attention. And this attempt to focus on the bits I think should be focused on results in a certain awkwardness. In the prose, and this awkwardness, an inevitable result of you know me trying to point the reader where I want them to be looking, is called my pro- my style. And I suppose whatever my style is, which I don't see if I, if I read my own stuff, I think well it's just you know just you know let him know the guy walked out the door and down the street and it was raining is just working to make the reader experience the things I think are important in that scene that they experience. Like, I always want to convey smells and echoes and be clear about what the light source is and where there's shadows and where there's you know illumination. And uh, just... Trying to get those things across, trying to make the reader as much as possible vicariously experience the details uh, is, I suppose, the basis of whatever my style may be. I, I, as I was saying before we started, um, I don't think anybody is aware of their own style any more than they're aware of their own accent. I mean, you talk to somebody from England or uh, Louisiana or uh, Canada, and you say, you know, that's an interesting accent you've got, and they're completely unaware of it.
0: Strikes me, your accent, as it were, your literary accent, is the stress of your regard. (laughs) The stress you put into trying to convey it, yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, now... um, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about some of the specifics of this book. Uh, you have a one of the things you do in all of your books is to bring in real literary figures and real characters, and, and and it writing a book like this seems like it must be like almost running a slalom course because you've got a bunch of real history that you have to ah, run your which plot yes <laughs>
1: slalom course is a good analogy. Yeah, you. Um, I find it helpful rather than restricting, Um, like the old playing tennis with or without a net. I like the net. Um, What I like to do is research as thoroughly as is feasible, and sometimes that can become a temptation to just do that and never actually stop doing that. But noting all the actual facts, and, and then I like to make a, a, a giant calendar and in ink, writing all the things that are unchangeable. These actually happened, uh, and then yeah, you like a slalom course. You just say what's uh, what's an interesting way through this, uh, you know, thicket of facts. And um, I think it'd be more difficult to be just working on a bare field. Uh, I I think it helps to have the the facts to sort of brace against. It's like uh, I'd rather write a sonnet than free verse, because I find the restrictions are are sort of what you build on, you know. (laughs) I try to hang a hammock without two trees.
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, it strikes me too, one of the things you do in this book in particular is to put together a plot out of poetry, out of real poetry and that's an, a, a, I think a lot of your supernatural plot and the aspects of that plot directly are are directly suggested by the poetry of these real figures and that's true. an interesting uh
1: way to work uh, yeah, that's true certainly things like Christina Rossetti's Goblin Market provides a real sort of uh basic pattern for you you've got the two sisters one is um In horrible peril because of a kind of weakness toward supernatural attractions and the other risks her life sanity soul in order to save her sister out of that quicksand Um, and you think cool I like that and in fact look at the Rossetti's we do have two sisters and in fact one was very devout and unrelentingly moral and the other was a little bit more freewheeling only in comparison of course poor Christina was not any kind of wild girl but there are a lot of hints in her poetry of some secret sin she's always reflecting on how sinful she is some some almost specifically some old romance that was absolutely wrong in some sort of even worse than adulterous terms and i don't think it's autobiographical really god knows where she got that sense of real bad personal guilt in real life but for my purposes it was a very convenient fit to say that it was a youthful commitment to the vampire ghost of her maternal uncle that was the source of all this guilt that shows up all the time in her poetry. And she's always, her poetry is full of ghosts in rivers. She talks in one of her prose pieces about constantly dreaming that she sees her father's ghost in the river, a body sort of washed up on the shore at night. And I think, thank you,
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll take that. Um, it's a fantastic scene, the way you work it out. This, this, <laughs> this that was a fun
1: scene. It's, ah, it's I, a really, I, a I did like breeze. that scene. <laughs> but um, yeah, often, of course, late at night when I'm getting tired and digging through the research, I'll find some extra f- fat little reference in a letter or journal or something that seems to independently confirm my theory. (laughs) And I'll think, oh my God, I'm not making this up. I have stumbled onto the true story. But then I go to bed and in the morning I don't think that anymore.
0: Well. One of the things I think that that uh, makes uh, this book in particular, and I think all your work, so interesting, you come from a science fiction background. Uh, you've written science fiction, and I think at the heart, at the very core of this novel, is a really in fascinating science fiction uh, notion, which is the idea of pre-organic, pre-atomite life, <laughs> and, yeah. and you spin that out nicely. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think
1: that's. True that 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 I do. Um, I've never I've never really left behind all the science fiction that I grew up reading. Um, you know, I think I was eleven when my mother gave me a Robert Heinlein book,
0: and corrupting influence. Oh, totally polarizing.
1: <laughs> I, I haven't deviated from it since. From writers like Heinlein and especially people like Fritz Leiber mm. or even H.P. Lovecraft. Um, I've picked up the idea that even if you're writing fantasy, you can't disregard physics. Um, Just because you've got supernatural stuff going on doesn't mean you can have an invisible man who can see by visible light. You need to worry about, well wait a sec, no if the light's all going right through him, Maybe you can see by infrared or something, but <laughs> you you got a problem there. Uh, boy, that's smart. <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> and, I, of course, a little tiny man, a, a, another cliche, uh, f- little four-inch tall men. Can't have a fantasy story really without going too long without having those guys show up. But having read Liber and Lovecraft, who were worried about such things, I have to think... How much does he eat? He's got too much surface area. He's, gonna, he's dispelling too much heat. How frequently does he eat? Does, can he talk? I don't see, where's his brain? He doesn't have enough brain to, he doesn't have his, any more brain than a mouse. Uh, does he keep his brain somewhere else? That would be okay, that would work. Um, but you need to be worried about uh, kind of physics details. Uh, levitation is a problem. Um, if you if you have something just levitate with no f- further explanation, you're violating general relativity, which is okay as long as you're aware of it and you make some sort of gesture mm-hmm. uh, to to say well yes yes but you see uh, we have this factor here. Um, hand waving, hand waving. Uh, yeah, you set off fireworks in the other end of the room. Uh, <laughs> it's sort of like in older novels, sometimes somebody's hair would turn white overnight because of some shock. And you think, okay, that's clearly impossible. The the hairs two inches out from the scalp don't know <laughs> what happened last night. Uh, and and that's a kind of blatant error along these lines. But I I kind of want to try to cover as many bases as I'm aware of in that direction. And that probably is from growing up in science fiction. It, it kind of uh, gives you a sort of unconscious grounding in that sort of thinking.
0: Well, uh, in this novel we have uh, vampires of a sort, but I think it's unlike any other kind of novel or vampire we've ever read about anywhere else except for your work. And so I, I you kind of, we. They're ghosts, they're vampires. You do a great job of creating what you call at one point in the book, the different species of vampires. Yeah. Um, and that notion in itself, A makes great sense and B makes you think, wow, how cool is that? Well, it,
1: it's kind of a consequence of saying, let's, let's write a story about vampires. Okay, of course we have to picture this really happening. We don't want to say make believe uh, we 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 want this to appear to be something that could really happen in the real world, not let's pretend and so you say well how how would they work why should uh, they hate sunlight uh, what is there about sunlight? what is sunlight? We got ultraviolet uh Heat. What What is it that they hate about it? Um, why should they hate garlic? Why should they hate iron? Um, and, of course, way back with uh, stress of regard, it occurred to me that they hate iron and silver, silver bullets, and they hate wooden stakes. Well, that first lot is uh, very good electrical conductors. And wood, of course, is a very good Insulator, so they they hate those extremes. They must be in the middle. They're semiconductors, <laughs> um, silicon, and of course silicon for, for forever in science fiction has been a alternate base for life uh, as opposed to carbon. You know they're right above each other in the periodic table and they work very much the same. And y- and you could plausibly say uh, have a silicon based life form. And so I thought, well, okay, that's, that's what we'll go with. Now, of course, if you try to pursue this too hard, it falls apart. I at one point called Gregory Benford and said, uh, I wanna say that they're a silicon-based life form, Greg, and uh, when they get exposed to an energy bath, which let's say is sunlight, they become silicon dioxide quartz and so trolls you know exposed to sunlight turning to stone they turn to quartz and lot's wife in the old testament it wasn't a pillar of salt it was let's say quartz and benford said very valuably since he's both a writer and a scientist he said okay well that's bogus but you can get by with it i think if you talk a lot about this and say nothing at all about that Huh. I a good Greg, that's exactly what I need. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of um, trying uh, at, at least enough to get past a reader's intelligence and skepticism to establish some kind of plausible physical basis so that the reader can read the book without having to think, Oh, I see, this is a make-believe story. I want as much as possible to trick them into thinking, oh, what the hell, maybe that could happen. Um, And at the same time, of course, you want to not lose the shivery, goosebumps, numinous, uh, intimidating, scary factor. You don't want to make it
0: just become technology. Well, you do great with, uh, with Numinous. There are a number of set pieces in this that are just gloriously beautiful and terrifying and awesome right. on different, <laughs> different, different, you know, depending on what mood you're in. And, and I'd like you to talk about crafting these kind of individual set pieces. Do you, do you imagine, okay, now do you just kind of set them aside as it were and say, okay, I can't wait to get to this part where I'm gonna write about
1: this yeah yeah to some extent I think Uh, some sneak up on you you realize that it that there's more dimension to be got out of a particular encounter than in the outline you had planned Um, but yeah you do sometimes think okay this should be a lot of fireworks Uh, this this should be a a very evocative scene Uh, and what often happens is I have the full you know organ music and flags waving going on in my head so much that I don't convey it in the story. I I, I sort of am assuming that uh, the organ music is sort of audible to everybody and I kind of just make notes. And luckily I have my wife read the stuff first and she'll say this scene should have been very affecting should have been you know uh, emotional but you kind of just walked through it and I'll realize oh yeah I did um, I sort of uh, took all the emotional effects that I knew were there as given um, and so I have to go back and say okay pretend pretend you're not a w- pretend you're a reader here powers try to try to convey this on the page and um, and so I'm very lucky that Uh, she does that. For example, there's one scene uh, when our hero uh, is in the Thames in danger of drowning and uh, some cat ghosts uh, come to his rescue and I thought it was very affecting because I was thinking of one cat of our own who I had been very fond of and who died but Serena read it and said, "You know, it's not coming through. I know what you're thinking, but the reader isn't going to know what you're thinking." So I, oh, oh right, 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 right. So I go back and redo it. But yeah, you do, you do um, see certain pieces and think, "Okay, there we're going to want to turn up the volume and uh, try to try to get some kind of." Echoey effects implying, you know, volume and distances beyond just what's in front of the camera. Here,
0: it's like you have um, in the the prose version of the the end of 2001, (laughs) in some ways and in many only done via in these Victorian landscapes. Now, here's something I have to ask you. You have a great sense of place. Want all these places you take us in this book but feel like you're really there. I mean, I'm sorry unless you've been going through the Anubis Gates, uh you haven't been there. <laughs> we now have been to england
1: uh when when I wrote the Anubis Gates, of course, we had not um but uh God knows when it was three or four years ago now, I suppose uh we, uh, there was a convention in Bradford and we took the opportunity to visit London and run around. Um, though I think really the, the, uh, the London I'm describing is one I picked up from Dickens and Stevenson and of course Henry Mayhew, uh, his uh, London Labor and London Poor volumes. Uh, And I always... Actually, I think acquaintance with a place through books is more effective than acquaintance with a place through actually walking around in it. Um, Because I can lay a whole bunch of picture books out on the floor Mm. and, and say, okay, if you were standing there, if you got enough picture books out there, you can say, if you were standing there and walked further up that street and turned left, you'd see this picture. And if you walked down that street, you would see this picture over here. Um, for example, I had a book of uh, Victorians, Victorian photographs of London. Um, and it was arranged very with with little maps in the corners to show you, with an arrow showing where the photographer was facing when he took this picture. You are here. Yeah, hundred years ago. <laughs> and there's other arrows in the picture. So if you want to say, well, what if the photographer turned around and looked behind him? Well, then you go to picture 16b, and with those, which are much more lasting than a memory of having been to a place. I could say, okay, well, look, it's four stories. And look, you can barely see St. Paul's uh, top of the cathedral dome there. Uh, That's interesting. And um, now look at the other picture behind you. You can see this and so forth. And so really, for purposes of writing, I find it way more helpful to uh, be in the living room with a bunch of
0: picture books all around me this book has a a wonderful sense of the various phenomena you talk about and we've talked a little bit about the species of vampires but one of the things I think you handle really well is rules is there uh, and you set this up for us very nicely that there are rules for the way these things behave and I'm wondering how much of that um, you pull out of lore, how much you make up and then how much is there like a a set of uh, lists up on the wall so you don't violate any of them? There is a list on the wall. Uh, I do have to make notes of
1: every single thing. Um, and sometimes I think my style of writing is, my system is set up for someone with no imagination and no memory. Um, I, I have to have everything laid out for me. But, um, yeah, I used a lot of rules from... Folklore and, uh, you know, mythology, uh, such as a vampire has to be invited across your threshold. They they can't just crowd in. you got to have let them in. And uh, D- don't like daylight. Uh, garlic is repellent to them.
0: And you yeah. have a brilliant explanation for yeah, that. Yeah, luckily, DNA, luckily
1: I, I mean, garlic... Uh, it does her. have a little uh, a f- a factor in it which uh, interferes with uh, uh, certain intrusions on DNA structure. I think cool. That, <laughs> as a matter of fact, maybe that maybe that is why they don't like garlic. But under cover of these rules that a reader is likely to recognize. I can sneak in rules which I hope have the same sort of tone, but which in fact I made up. Mm. Like if you're trying to consult a ghost, um, you can use a sort of Ouija board planchette arrangement if the ghost is willing to talk to you, but you can't compel Mm -hmm. participation. Uh, In order to compel a ghost's cooperation, you have to capture it Um, through a a bird eating the ghost and boil it and the steam uh, can, can be used to consult the ghost. And I hope that having won some credulity with the hate daylight, hate garlic have to be invited details the reader won't snag on my made up rules.
0: Actually, I like those better.
1: You well, know, you I, try I, to
0: have them have the same sort of folklore taste. They do, and they, 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 uh, it's like you get to discover these rules. As a reader, that's what I love about your books, is you, you give us some stuff we know, and sometimes you say, wow, that makes perfect sense. Where yeah, did you, you find
1: that out? Yeah, you do want it to have the sort of um, pre-logical, mm-hmm. Uh, sound that that makes our pre-logical parts of our brain say oh well yeah right that, uh, of course um, ghosts feel guilty about being dead <laughs> yes what a
0: great idea
1: <laughs> uh, yeah I think I may have got that from um, Religio Medici is that Thomas Brown uh, he said I am not so much afraid of death as ashamed of it and I thought, cool <laughs> well, where I, he wasn't talking about ghosts, of course, but uh what a what a neat thought uh it's all sort of scavenger magpie
0: stuff really I, I, the art is in what bits of litter you pick up <laughs> well i I think that uh you're just a master of for for all that you may uh suggest that you have a kind of collage style um I think the 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 pure art that you have is is putting it together and giving us the prose and the story, and also the characters. Let's talk a little bit about your characters. Uh,
1: well, of course, the historical characters. Um, the 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 challenge is simply to find out who exactly they were, really, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's fun because you just get to read a bunch of biographies, uh, and it's very useful to read. Biographies from different times because, um, say, a year 2000 version of Christina Rossetti is going to be very different from a 1950 or 1900 biography of her. Uh, And I always want to be careful not to give too much weight to the new one. Uh, Because each of these is going to be reflecting largely the uh, predominant philosophies of whatever year they were written in Mm -hmm. and I don't want to be stuck by default with whatever the current one is but um, Those are fun because you get ready-made a character Mm -hmm. with conflicts and secrets and guilts and whatnot Um, with the made-up characters such as uh, John Crawford and Adelaide McKee uh, it's a different kind of fun in that, for one thing, you want to ba- build them so that they'll be best fitted to be propelled through the events of the story. Um, but then you also want them to be A, interesting, and B, the citizens of their time. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, I had John Crawford be much more intimidated, or put off, offended by Adelaide McKee's immoral history Mm -hmm. than I think a citizen of 2012 would be. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was the whole stigma of the fallen woman, uh, Adelaide McKee being a graduate of the Magdalene Penitentiary for Fallen Women. And the way that the policy was to break them away from their previous evil life, give them some skills, and then find them positions in the north of England or in the colonies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea being that they would not be able to stay in London. And that was, An interesting sort of extra aspect to the characters. Mm -hmm. Almost as if you're writing characters in a science fiction future story where the social arrangements and taboos and permissivenesses would all be
0: located on different squares than what we have now. Uh, Well, this is a a remarkable feat of world building in that sense. I mean, because this world, the entire world, and you're world building on two really interesting different levels. On one hand, you have the historical world, which feels perfect, and then you are weaving into that the supernatural world that uh, kind of reflects and echoes with that. And that's a, that's a challenge it must be.
1: Yeah, I always want to build the uh, supernatural element, if possible, out of whatever the superstitions and uh, beliefs of the time and place were mm-hmm. um, for a story involving... Pirates in the Caribbean in 1718, uh, voodoo was obviously indicated. Um, for a story in uh, Arabia, obviously uh, things like the Arabian Nights was indicated. And so for this, I did try to uh, work with kind of the sort of ghosts that Christina Rossetti seemed to be dealing with in her poetry. Mm-hmm. And uh, the old Roman Britain conflicts with uh, like Boadicea and and uh, the native Cymric and Celtic
0: tribes of England. You do a fantastic job of, you know, as I was driving here, I was noticing, um, these huge um, spans over the freeway, just these giant concrete things of mountains in oh, the yeah. background. And I'm thinking, you know, that kind of reminds me in some ways of some of the big structures that Mr. Powers writes about. Um, and and, and cause, because you're a you're really super talented at evoke, taking a landscape and then evoking kind of gods and supernatural powers rising up out of those landscapes, like oh, steam. True. And I was wondering whether... The landscapes you live in around here, and it, even though they're technological, whether they influence that vision,
1: I, su- I suppose, I suppose so. The mountains and, and being in kind of the middle distance, mm-hmm. um, and for example, I remember being struck when we visited Las Vegas for a research trip with uh, seeing Hoover Dam. Uh, As you park on the Nevada side, or maybe it was the Arizona side, anyway, you're walking back toward the dam and your eyes have a problem focusing on it because, in effect, your eyes are saying, it can't be that big and that far away. I must be focusing wrong. And they keep kind of trying to reset themselves to grasp this thing. That happens in this book. That same thing happens in this book. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yes, that's right. That's right. I remember. Um, I always want in describing stuff Mm -hmm. to convey volume, Mm -hmm. uh, space. Um, I'm always afraid that if if you don't consciously work on conveying that, your mountains are going to be... 30 feet behind your buildings (laughs) which will be 10 feet deep (laughs) and there'll be a bunch of flat trees in front of them and the whole works it would be about the depth of a 7-eleven store Uh, that you need to consciously expand it out make it a a movie scene rather than rather than a theater scene.
0: That's uh, really interesting Um, you know in this book, and in the, the stress of her regard, you talk a lot about literary salons, and and that's you know kind of at the heart of both of those books. And it struck me that in about let's see here, the year 2110. Uh, some enterprising author might decide to write about a literary salon that took place in the 1970s where in these famous science fiction fantasy writers, Tim Powers, Jim Blaylock, Dean Kuntz, and Philip K.W. Jeter, and Philip K. Dick all were hanging out. (laughs) Yeah. Um. And I wonder how much uh, influence that literary salon that you participated in, how much that bubbles up through these. Well, you know, we never actually much talked about literary stuff.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Every Thursday night, uh, we'd host a thing at our apartment. And uh, Phil Dick lived just a few blocks away. Everybody lived pretty locally. And um, I worked at a tobacco shop, so I'd bring home cigars. And uh, there'd be various kinds of beer and scotch and...
0: Uh that's a perfect literary gathering. The less said about literature the better. <laughs> well yeah. And and certainly most of the people there
1: were not mm-hmm. any sort of writers. Uh it would be people from the tobacco shop where I was working and neighbors and uh, it happened that it included Phil Dick and Blaylock and Jeter and uh sometimes Kuntz. Um but as a literary gathering, it would be kind of a disappointment. Mm. Uh, the, the most that would ever happen would be me or Blalock or Jeter would say, damn, you know, Ace Books just rejected this manuscript of mine. And Phil Dick would say, it's just as well, there's too many books in the
0: world already. Uh, <laughs> That's a line from Stanislaw Lim, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yes, <Okay>. <laughs> There's a good uh, piece called Pericalypse, wherein he proposes you pay people not to write books. And <laughs> because so many have been written, the books that would save the world couldn't possibly be found.
1: Well, yeah, even if no more were ever to be written again, uh, certainly I'd, I'd still have plenty to read for the rest of my life. Well, me too.
0: <laughs> but, but
1: you need to keep writing. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, slowly but steadily. But, um, yeah, it, uh, it was... A uh, real sociable gathering mm-hmm. for years and years, but uh, as I say, it it really wasn't literary. We, did, w- for one thing, me and Blaylock and Jeter would have been in our, I don't know, twenties, early thirties, and Phil Dick would have been in his late forties. We would have been too shy to uh, try to talk shop with him, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, well, Phil, you know, how do you handle it? Uh, I find uh, the just, just literary technique, uh, we'd have I felt like absolute pretentious little fools. So mainly we talked about, I don't know, movies and local Mexican restaurants and what was going wrong with our cars
0: and things like that. And there was a great Mexican restaurant in Santa Ana that served me the only lamb burrito I'd ever had, and it was fantastic. All right, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, there, there were several real good ones up and mm-hmm. down Main Street. I, for all I know, they're still there. We don't live there anymore. Um, so, uh, back to literary salons, though, I think that's an interesting uh, terrain for you to explore as a writer. And there's a lot of, in this book uh, in particular, there's a lot of literary layering in that Um, At one point, uh, the main character, he he takes on the the, uh, identities from a play. Oh, yeah. And and, uh, obviously all these people are writers and you're quoting poems throughout the book. So I'd like you to just talk about kind of that um, writing literature about literature using literature. Yeah, That's true.
1: I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, I hope I'm not drifting into postmodern.
0: it's too exciting for postmodern, my
1: friend. Uh, yeah, postmodern always seems to me, uh abdication of the main duty of fiction, which is to make the reader
0: totally forget that it's fake. Well, yeah, you're just—I I just spent the, you know, the last uh, five days in uh, 19th century England. It was uh, with uh, my soul being threatened by ancient. Uh, 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 yeah, what <laughs> more can I ask? I, I, I could, I could go on and uh, on and on about. what what went wrong
1: with several sorts of arts in the 20th century but um, I know whenever whenever I'm uh, writing characters going through stressful situations I'll think of a line from somebody or a bit of dialogue from a play and if the character is literate, and the bits I'm thinking of are before the character's time, it's real convenient and natural to have them note uh, the, the appositeness of, of some line or reference. Um, and, and luckily the Rossettis were way more literate than I am, so any, any parallels I'd think of, uh, there'd be no stretch to have them think of it too. And I did make uh, both Adelaide McKee and John Crawford be fairly well read, just so I'd have room to have them
0: uh, think of associations like that. Now, this book is very cinematic, and you actually i just had a m- book adapted into a movie. In a fashion. In a fashion, <laughs> after a fashion. Uh, we, we would rather have seen it I don't even
1: care, it's over, it's movies are so much on the other side of a big wall mm-hmm. that um, I, I don't feel any responsibility or preference about, about how they're handled. Uh, I just hope, I,
0: I hope that happens a lot. Uh, I, I have, have they, has, has that uh, generated any interest in any of your other work?
1: Mm.
0: I mean, I can see the Maybe. the, the yeah. HBO series with, of the ex of uh, the Fisher King trilogy.
1: Uh, I, there is a, a guy in Hollywood who has an option on Last Call, and uh, somebody recently bought an option on uh, the Anubis Gates. Uh, if, whether because of the Disney movie or not, I have no idea. Um, it's always a mystery to me. I, I uh, almost superstitiously don't wanna know how Hollywood works. Uh, if if they, wanna, if they lean over the wall and say, Powers, we wanna option this book of yours. I think, cool, yes, let's do that. But then
0: I don't wanna know what they do. Um, so in this sense, you're a character in one of your own books. <laughs> it's your superstition. Uh, uh, yeah, yes, right. <laughs> uh,
1: and, and if they throw money over the wall, that's great.
0: But uh,
1: I would never, for example, say, I want to be involved. Mm-hmm. I want to, I don't know, vet the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, because, in fact, I
0: I wouldn't know the basis for evaluating a screenplay. Well, the I think books and, and movies are fundamentally different oh, yeah. experiences. Uh, t- to my mind, books have much more staying power. I, you can A good book, you can visit the memories you experience reading a good book because you form them in the same way you form memories of going places and doing things.
1: Yeah, and I like it because you don't need like hardware. Uh, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, no, there's no hardware.
1: Like I love uh, any number of movies, but I'm always aware that if there's ever an EMP, electromagnetic pulse, um, I, they're gone,
0: yeah.
1: and and if I've got my DVDs and technology moves on to something else, my DVDs are just a bunch of uh, rainbow-colored frisbees. <laughs> uh, but but books, I you know I, I don't need a machine to
0: uh, to reread. Um, and I want to vis- take one last visit with some of the characters you write about, uh, Trelawney and, and particularly Swinburne. You have so much fun with Swinburne and poor old Swinburne. <laughs> <laughs> I I
1: love his poetry, mm-hmm. um, but he really was a I don't want to say despicable, um, irresponsible, and and uh, weak character. Uh, I mean, he he wouldn't just get drunk the way Byron or somebody would. He'd get drunk and slide naked down the banister in the middle of a party. And he made, he's saying, you know, maybe maybe you shouldn't drink, man. <laughs> uh, and just always totally out of control. And his weird taste for um, going to those clubs where girls would whip him. Uh, The whole flagellation business, Um, you think it's a real good thing that fairly early in life, what was he, maybe 30, uh, some friend took him under his wing and just said, Algernon, this has got to stop. You come live way out of London with me here, Uh, no more drink, no more socializing. And as it happened, no more great poetry, but at least Swinburne did get to live to be about 70. Uh, this is called an intervention.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and a he, Victorian intervention. And he, and he <laughs> was He
1: was within a year of dying if the guy had not uh, snatched him out of London. Um, but yeah, Swinburne was just so absolutely helplessly irresponsible. Um, Trelawney is a. V- v- Starkly contrasting figure, uh, real, uh, of course, a total liar. Uh, he, uh, until roughly roughly age thirty, uh, his whole life story, as he told it to everybody and as he wrote in his autobiography, was completely a fantasy. He wrote about having uh, gone AWOL from the British Navy and become a pirate in the Indian Ocean and marrying an Arab princess who was killed by a shark and all kind of sea battles and duels. And a terrific book, his autobiography, but it's completely fiction. Although he insisted
0: all his life that it was true. Too bad he couldn't get o- interviewed by Oprah.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, yes, and, and she'd have been <laughs> embarrassed when it turned out all to be fake. But then, after he knew Byron, he began actually to live a life like that. He really was second in command to the Greek mountain warlord and got shot in the back and uh, went on to swim the Niagara River and uh, nearly die of it and just had all sorts of genuine adventures after that. And... Always was a complete contrast with Swinburne rigidly disciplined um, I mean he would participate in duels and things that are kind of morally uh, questionable, but according to his absolute code, he never deviated from it, and in his eighties he was uh this strict health regimen uh, swimming in icy rivers and uh, very very plausible character for the kind of role I wanted to put him in Um, not necessarily what anyone would recognize as conventionally moral but absolutely fearless
0: according to his own peculiar perceptions uh, you do a great job of conveying that in the book that's one of the things I really like about him is that you you sense that he has m- a morality that's maybe about two steps to the left and three steps to the right of everybody else's yeah but he's he, he's very strict along both those lines
1: and and contrary he was very mm-hmm. contrary uh, like he did say I rest six days and do everything I have to do on Sunday because it's forbidden. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he was a beautiful character to pick up out of history. Um, uh, One of those uh, special instances where you just think, I don't have to touch this guy. He he arrives
0: exactly perfect for use in fiction. Now, I recently spoke with Mr. Blaylock. He informed me that you guys are halfway through a collaborative story. Uh, I'm wondering <laughs> if that's if that's gonna happen it's been shelved for a little while but uh-huh. um you, you
1: actually I think we sort of generally are always halfway through a collaborative story if if it's the one I'm thinking of
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah it
0: uh it was on his desktop in his um, on his computer okay yeah well it's time we got back
1: to that i, I think I interrupted it for some purpose Yeah, and this
0: book and I're glad you
1: did yeah it um. We'll have to get back to it. As I recall, there were some good things in it. It's always fun collaborating with Blaylock. I don't think I could with anybody else, but I've known him since 72, and uh, I've, we we picked up on all the same authors at the same time, so, so we uh, think relatively alike. Um, but it's always fun to write the first five or six pages of a story and give it to him, and a week later, it's 15 or 20 pages. I think, how did that happen? What a a cool effect. (laughs) And then each of us, when given a fresh stack of papers from the other, you go through it and rewrite it and throw things out and add things with never a thought uh, of, will he be offended? You know, uh, is he gonna be mad? I tore up his pages here. I think with anybody else, I probably would be offended and the other person probably would be offended. But with Blaylock it's sort of uh I sort of like the other half of your brain working on it. Um are you working on
0: something now? What are you are you researching something now? Right
1: now I'm researching. Uh it's looking like uh involving roughly contemporary Southern California. Oh good. Either twentieth century or
0: 21st century, that is, up to 2012. Uh, do you think you might ever write science fiction again, something set in the future? You know,
1: I I've, I would like to.
0: Um, I've always thought it would be fun to do
1: something involving orbital colonies, O'Neill colonies type thing. Um, or generational starship, like uh, Heinlein's universe. Um, I think To some extent, it would require not just research, but uh, being a little more aware of what's going on in the field. Mm. Because right now, I've read all there is practically of science fiction and fantasy up to about 1975. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's very spotty
0: after (laughs) 75. (laughs) In fact, I don't think anybody can read it all anymore. No, it's too fa- it comes out too fast, and there's so much good stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, so I gather. Uh, but I just kind of don't read my contemporaries, which socially is kind of a help. <laughs> you know, you can meet these people, and uh, you're not hampered by uh, being choked with awe because you love their books or awkward embarrassment because you hated their books. It's just socially meeting them in
0: the bar at a convention. I've been speaking with Tim Powers. His new book is Hide Me Among the Graves. Thank you for joining me, Tim. Well, thank you. Always, uh, always a pleasure.